The Coram Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you are about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. This morning's scripture reading is from John chapter 12, verses 12 through 50. John 12, 12 through 50. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, 
lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive me, my words, has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. The word of God for the people of God. All right, well, get out the Bible under your seat if you haven't already. Open it to page 845, John chapter 12. Uh, my name is Bob. I'm one of the pastors here. We're in a series working our way through the fourth gospel, the gospel of John. And uh, welcome. Glad you're here. We're going to continue that this morning. In every good story, there's a moment of climactic tension. And we are at that point in the story of Jesus and in the Gospel of John. Since chapter 1 of the Gospel of John, we've been following Jesus' public ministry. We've been seeing both his growing fame and growing opposition. We've also seen that Jesus has generally avoided the public spotlight. He seems to be waiting for something. In John chapter 2, you may remember when he turned the water into wine, he said to his mother, my hour has not yet come. Now in chapter 12, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So the, the moment is here. We are now in Jerusalem at the Feast of Passover in the final week of Jesus' life. This is the high point, the sort of climactic moment in the story of Jesus' life. And you might have noticed that the text we read this morning is generally a Palm Sunday text. Palm Sunday is in April this year. So for the next three months, we're going to be in the last week of Jesus' life. All right? It's a really long week. It's going to feel sort of like winter. But spring will get here eventually. Now, I want you to think back to when you first encountered the teachings of Jesus. Uh, here's what probably happened. On the one hand, the story of Jesus probably fulfilled some of your deepest longings. You probably found yourself in some way saying, this is kind of what I've been looking for my whole life. And on the other hand, the story of Jesus probably totally confounded your existing worldview. You probably found yourself thinking in moments, that can't possibly be the way things are. So on the one hand, the message of Jesus was like the missing puzzle piece that made everything fit together. And on the other hand, the message of Jesus was like a gale force wind that blew your whole puzzle off the table. A lot of things in life are kind of like that. Having kids is kind of like that, Right? You hold this precious child in your arms, whether born naturally or adopted into your family. You receive this child and you think, man, this is unbelievable. This is almost like mystical. It's like a weird power to this. And then you take that child home and 
A month later, you're sleep-deprived and delirious, and you're thinking, this is insane. How does anybody do this? Right? Is there even a God? And that cycle just repeats itself as your kids grow up. There's moments of deep fulfillment and moments of total confusion. And, and all of that, whether it's in that area of life or lots of other areas of life, it's God's way of preparing you uh, for the kingdom of God. Because when the kingdom of God comes in your life, there are ways that it's going to complete you and there are ways that it's going to confound you. When the kingdom of God comes in your life, there are ways it's going to make absolute sense, and there are ways it's going to make no sense at all. There are ways it's going to confirm things you've always thought, and there are ways it's going to upend everything you've ever thought. And as John brings us to the end of Jesus' public ministry, he wants to bring us face-to-face with that reality about the kingdom of God. So here's the big idea of this text and of the sermon this morning. It's simply this, the kingdom of God brings both resolution and revolution. The kingdom of God brings both resolution and revolution. That's what John has to show us. So let's start with this theme, this idea of resolution. I'm going to play some piano this morning, so I'm actually going to go back here to the keyboard, and um, I'm, just going to, I'm just going to play a little scale, all right? This is a sermon illustration. This is not a praise break, okay? Your ear is already supplying the final note, isn't it? Because a basic principle of musical composition is that tension seeks resolution. And so when you hear a scale, before you get to that eighth, your, your mind already goes there. This is how good composition works. Your, your ear is looking for something, and when that note or when that scale or when that piece of music resolves, you feel like, oh, there's the completion. The same is true of narrative and storytelling. Stories seek resolution. And what John wants to show us in this chapter is how Jesus is the resolution to two very important stories. First, Jesus is the resolution to the story of Israel. That's the first uh, picture John gives us, starting in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So during Jewish feast days, the population of Jerusalem would swell to about twice its normal size. If you want sort of a, a picture of this in our day, think of the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally, but real different. Uh, think of Panama City Beach at spring break, but again, real different. Uh, the Coachella Music Festival, these these kinds of things where there's people everywhere, people are camping in every open space, every bar and tavern and restaurant is full, every street is thronging with people. It's that kind of moment in Jerusalem. And there's a crowd coming with Jesus from Bethany, from the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and there's a crowd coming to meet Jesus from Jerusalem. And so we have these two crowds sort of coming together. Verse 13, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is a line from Psalm 118, which was sung each morning by the temple choir during the major Jewish feast. It was meant to be a prayer of blessing on the pilgrims who were coming up to Jerusalem for the feast. And in the years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, This psalm, Psalm 118, became sort of a messianic rallying cry. 
blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, was not just a way of blessing the people who came to Jerusalem. It was a way of expressing the people's longing for a Messiah, one who would come in the name of the Lord. Remember, at this time in history, the Israelite people have been subjugated under foreign powers for over five centuries. In 586 BC, the city of Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians. In 539 BC, the Babylonians are overthrown by the Persians. In 334 BC, the Persians are overthrown by Alexander the Great. Then Alexander the Great dies in 323 BC, and Syria becomes the major power in the region. And then in 64 BC, the Romans overthrow Syria. There were a couple of moments during that whole stretch of time when the Jewish people rose up against occupying powers and asserted their independence and their identity as a nation. And do you know what one of the symbols of Jewish independence was? The palm branch. Date palms are a native plant in Judea, and the waving of palm branches had become a sign of Jewish pride and Jewish nationalism. And so by waving palm branches and going out to meet Jesus and crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the people are acknowledging Jesus as the great deliverer they've been waiting for. They're calling him the King of Israel. And even though their expectations are wrong, even though they're expecting a political liberator who will rule with military might, John wants you to understand they might have had the wrong idea of what they were looking for, but their proclamation is correct. Jesus is the king of Israel. Jesus is the resolution to Israel's story. And to demonstrate that, notice what Jesus does. Verse 14, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. He's quoting there the prophecy of Zechariah 9, verse 9, which is an important prophecy in the Old Testament because Zechariah is one of the last prophets of the Old Testament. And by the time Zechariah writes this, it's clear to everyone who's lived for any length of time that, that the hope of Israel has to come from some kind of intervention of God, someone who would come to set God's people free. Jesus is the resolution to Israel's story. Friends, do you know why the part of the Bible we're reading is called the New Testament? Because it builds on the Old Testament. St. Augustine famously said, the New Testament is in the Old concealed, and the Old Testament is by the New revealed. Jesus is the resolution to the story of Israel. He fulfills all the prophecies of the Old Testament. He completes all the storylines of the Old Testament. He ties up the loose ends that are left hanging in the Old Testament. And notice what John tells you in verse 16. You should feel encouraged by this. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. In hindsight, as they look back and as they step out far enough to see the whole storyline, they realize and they begin to see that Jesus is the resolution to Israel's story. The whole New Testament, you can think of it as commentary on the Old Testament and fulfillment of the Old Testament, right? All the apostles are just looking back and saying, oh yeah, this is what God said he would do. And now he's done it in the coming of Jesus. Jesus is the resolution to Israel's story. But then there's an even more fascinating observation. 
Not only is Jesus the resolution to Israel's story, but Jesus is the resolution to the stories of the pagans. Look at verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. He's not just telling you their ethnic background. These people represent the non-Israelite world, the pagan nations. Verse 21, so these came to Philip, a guy with a Greek name who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, a Greek place, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus, of course, is speaking metaphorically of his own death. But why does he choose this metaphor? The answer to that question gets us all the way to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So let me start with the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and I'm going to draw the connection for you to John chapter 12, all right? If you are a Marvel fan, which you may not be, I'm not, it's okay. We don't all have to like the same movies. But if you are a Marvel fan, you're familiar with characters like Thor and Loki and Odin. These are characters that come to us from Norse mythology. The people at Marvel are not creating any new stories. They are just repopularizing stories that were being told in Iceland and Sweden and Norway a thousand years ago. And in a famous collection of Norse poetry called the Edda, we find the story of another character, a god named Baldr who is the son of Odin and the brother of Thor and Loki. And in the Edda, Baldur is called the bleeding god because he dies after having a spear thrust into his side because of Loki's mischief. But the story is that Baldur will be reborn and that with his rebirth, he will bring about a renewed world. I realize Marvel hasn't made this movie yet, but I'm sure it's coming. So what it does, you just be like, oh yeah, I heard a sermon about that movie before it came out. Okay. Now, as you may know, uh, C.S. Lewis, one of the most famous Christian writers and thinkers of the last century, was an expert in medieval literature and mythology. And he was particularly fascinated by Norse mythology and by the tale of Baldur, the bleeding god. And he and some of his colleagues traced this myth back through history and discovered that every pagan culture they could find, from the Nordic peoples, to the Aztecs, to the Greeks, and the Romans, and the Egyptians. Every pagan culture had a myth about a god who dies and is reborn. In Greek mythology, it was Adonis. In Egypt, it was Osiris. In Persia, it was the god Mithra. And in every one of these cultures, this dying and rising god was associated with the wheat harvest. His death and rebirth paralleled the seasonal cycle of wheat. In fact, worshipers would bring ripe ears of grain and lay them on the altar as a way of honoring these gods. So in John 12, 24, we have some Greeks coming to Jesus. And we have Jesus saying to these Greeks, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. This metaphor is found nowhere in the Old Testament. But it is found in the mythology of every pagan culture we know of. 
Do you see what Jesus is saying to these Greeks? He's telling them he's the resolution to their story too. He doesn't just resolve the the narrative of Israel. He resolves the narrative of all the pagan myths from Osiris to Balder. It's as though he's saying to these Greeks, all your lives, you've been hearing stories about the dying and rising God, the one whose death and rebirth will bring about the renewal of the world. That's who I am. Friends, God doesn't just speak through the Bible and through the history of Israel. He also speaks through the sense of the divine that's present in every human being and in every human culture. And so when you watch a great movie, when you listen to a great album, when you read a great book, you're hearing the first notes of a musical scale. And that scale resolves in Jesus and in his kingdom. Look how Jesus ends his conversation with these Greeks, verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. He ends his conversation by saying, hey, don't just be intrigued that I'm the resolution to these stories. Be my follower. Be my disciple. Give up your life in this world and come and find true life in me. The kingdom of God brings resolution to the stories of Israel and to the stories that human beings have told in almost every culture. That's the first theme, the theme of resolution. But remember, I said the kingdom of God brings both resolution and revolution. So, though it does complete stories and bring to fulfillment hopes and dreams, it also turns some things upside down. It upends our expectations. And John now shows us three places where the kingdom of God brings revolution. First, the kingdom of God brings a revolution in our understanding of time. Listen to the time words in this next section, starting in verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. The hour, the now, the moment Jesus is speaking of is the moment of his death and resurrection. The crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus is a decisive moment that changes forever our relationship to time. Christians live with an eschatological understanding of time. Now that's a big word I just used. Eschatology is just a big theological word that means end times or the final days. Not in the sense that the sky is falling or that the world is going to end tomorrow, but in the sense that the defining moment in history has already taken place. And so now we're living at the end of history in the last chapter of the story. We who belong to Jesus understand the time, the moment that we're living in, that we're living in the last chapter of the story that God's been writing since the beginning. Consider the arc of redemptive history. 
For centuries, there was only the promise that God had made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And there were years of waiting for that promise to be fulfilled. And then God acted to deliver his people from slavery through Moses and bring them into the promised land. But then they quickly forgot God. And so again, years and years of waiting for God to raise up a leader like Moses. And then finally, King David under whose reign the people flourish. But then David's descendants turn from the Lord. And so again, years and years of waiting for the Messiah, the greater Moses, the greater David, who will finally set them free. And then finally, Jesus the Messiah comes. And he lives. And he dies. And he rises from the dead. And he sends his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. And he sends the Holy Spirit upon the church. And what that means is now, now, there's nothing else to wait for. We're living in the final act. We're living in the now of the kingdom of God. The now that began with Jesus' death and resurrection and is right now continuing. And friends, that changes how we relate to time. Like, you don't mark time the same way as the world around you. You don't live with the same understanding of the moment you're in. Listen to Romans chapter 13, and notice how it uses the same language that we see in John 12. Romans 13, verse 11, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then... Let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Do you see what the scripture is saying? Saying, hey, pay attention to what time it is. It's daytime. Christ, our light, has come. We're no longer living in darkness. Let's live in light of what time it is. Don't be sleepy. Be awake. Know the moment you're living in. The kingdom of God brings with it a revolution in our understanding of time, our sense of what moment we are living in. Second, the kingdom of God brings a revolution in our understanding of success. Next section, verse 36, second half of verse 36. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Don't you wish Jesus was a little more successful than that? Doesn't that sound like kind of a, eh, not such a great ministry? I mean, that doesn't sound like a super successful evangelistic ministry, does it? Here's what success means. Success means many people believed. Massive revival, lots of conversions, church growth, everything was up and to the right. Well, apparently not. Because the kingdom of God brings a revolution in our understanding of success. Notice what John does here. He quotes two passages from the prophet Isaiah. From chapter 53 of Isaiah and chapter 6. I'm going to focus on the quote from Isaiah 6, which is one of the most famous passages in the Bible. The hymn, Holy, 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 which we sang just last week, is taken from this text. In Isaiah 6, the prophet Isaiah has a vision of God sitting on his throne, high and lifted up. And Isaiah is humbled and falls to his knees and confesses his sin. And then in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, 
Isaiah hears the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. And almost every missions conference or church planting conference I've been to, this passage is the theme and the touchstone. Here am I, send me. And by the way, what a beautiful response. What a beautiful heart of longing for God's glory to be known in the world and for someone to represent him and do his work on earth. It's just that no one ever reads the rest of the chapter. Here's what verse 9 says. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. God says to Isaiah, Isaiah, I want you to go. I am going to send you. I want you to proclaim my word to this people, but I want you to know as you go that they're not going to listen. Their eyes are going to be blinded. Their ears are going to be deaf. They're not going to listen or repent or respond. And John is telling us that Jesus in his ministry is fulfilling these words spoken by Isaiah. Which is important for your understanding of success. Right? The kingdom of God brings a revolution in our understanding of success because here's what John is showing us. Not everyone you share the gospel with is going to welcome the message. Not everyone who joins your gospel community is going to stick around and become a disciple of Jesus. Not everyone who starts out following Jesus is going to persevere till the end. See, if your vision of success, especially success in God's kingdom is that everything is always up and to the right. Everything always grows. Profit is always maximized. There's always more return for shareholders. If that's your vision, it's going to be hard for you to understand why God would allow seasons of pruning, seasons of hardship, seasons of darkness, seasons of fruitlessness, seasons of frustration and struggle. But you see, the kingdom of God operates on a whole different understanding of success. John is telling you, even the best preacher in the history of preachers couldn't get everyone to listen to his message. God has his own purposes. God has his own reasons. God has his own plan that he is working out in the world. And specifically, as we read John 12 alongside Romans 11, we understand that part of what God is doing in the day of Jesus, in the time of the apostles, is allowing the Jewish people to be somewhat hardened to the message so that it can go forward to the Gentiles. And that's good news for us because that's why you're here today. So let's get our definition of success from Jesus and not from corporate America, right? The kingdom of God revolutionizes our understanding of success. What does it mean for ministry, for evangelism, for the church to be successful? Finally, the kingdom of God brings a revolution in our understanding of judgment. Some of you who are not Christians have bought into the idea that Christianity is primarily a message of judgment. That God's main concern is to send people to hell and you just need to figure out whether you're the next person on his list. And some of you who are Christians have bought into the idea that real Christianity, serious Christianity, is judgmental Christianity. 
The kind where you pass judgment on everyone. And if we're not talking about hell and judgment, we must not be talking about the gospel. I want you to listen to the amazing way Jesus concludes his public ministry in the gospel of John. Verse 44. Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. I want you to notice two crucial things about how Jesus concludes his ministry. Number one, notice that judgment is a byproduct of salvation. Verse 47, Jesus says, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The mission Jesus is on is a mission of salvation. He's not out to judge you. He's out to save you. Judgment is a byproduct of resisting and refusing salvation. And second, notice this fascinating point that Jesus makes, that it's not Jesus who's going to judge you on the last day. It's the word that Jesus has spoken that will judge you on the last day. Notice he, he puts the locus of authority upon the word that he has spoken. It's as though Jesus is saying, look, my message is on the public record. What I teach, what I've said about the kingdom of God, the good news I've proclaimed about the Father, it's all on the public record. It's all right here for you to access. And so if you receive these words, if you hear the gospel, the message of Jesus, and believe, you will be saved and welcomed into the kingdom of God. And if you hear these words and reject them, well, then what you're saying is Jesus did not come from the Father, and Jesus does not speak for the Father, and his words are not true. And, and that's what you'll have to answer for on the last day. You're making a judgment on the message that Jesus has brought. And that itself is, the judgment you make on that is the judgment. Like the message is on record, and that's the same message that will be on record on the last day. Christians, therefore, are a people of the word. We're a people defined by the message, the gospel, the proclamation, the word, the news that Jesus has brought us. Our job is not to judge the world, to condemn the world. Our job is to hold forth in the world the message of the gospel, the good news that Jesus has brought. This is what we mean, is why we define ourselves here at Cormdeo as a gospel-centered church. Because what Jesus says is, here's the thing I'm putting forth, the thing you're going to be judged by, the thing you have to respond to. It's, it's the message, it's my word. And so Christians are just a people who are built, are built on and built around that word, that message, who are centered on that word, that message, who believe and receive that word and that message, and who long for others to believe, receive, 
that word, that message. The invitation then to all of us is today to hear his word. To hear this message. To come into his kingdom. To define our lives by this word, this truth, this message that Jesus has brought. And after this point in the Gospel of John, Jesus now is going to speak just to his disciples. We're going to go into four chapters of the upper room discourse, him teaching his disciples and praying with his disciples and seeking the Father alongside his disciples. His public ministry is done. And what Jesus said is, look, the one who rejects me does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I've spoken will judge him on the last day, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. It's all very plain, you see. Jesus has brought a message. He's given us a word. He's brought the message, the truth, the news of the kingdom of God. And we can either receive that and respond to it, or we can reject that and push away from it. And how we respond to that word is how we respond to Jesus. So, The only option Jesus closes off is he does not allow you to say, yeah, I'm kind of into Jesus. I think Jesus was cool. I'm just not sure what I think about, you know, the message of Christianity, the message that Jesus brought. Jesus is saying, how you respond to my word is how you respond to me and how you respond to the Father. So the beauty of this is we just get to hear this word, be reminded of this word, and be invited to respond, to welcome to receive this news. The kingdom of God, friends, brings with it both resolution and revolution. There's ways it completes our story and fulfills longings we've always known we had but didn't know how to fulfill. There's also ways it turns our whole world upside down and changes the way we see everything. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for these words and we receive this message that you have sent through your apostles and through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that you have welcomed us into your kingdom, that you have sent Jesus not to judge the world, but to save it. Would we be those people who welcome Christ and his word, who respond in humility and faith and repentance, and who find joy in life and purpose in the message of the gospel and in union with the Lord Jesus Christ. So Father, bring back a harvest of worship from our hearts and where there are places of unbelief or darkness or lingering doubt or fear or uncertainty, meet us in those places of our souls right now this morning with the refreshing good news, the gospel of your kingdom. Thank you that you bring resolution to our longings and hopes and that you also confront us and bring a whole new understanding of the world we live in. Help us be then a people who live in light of your kingdom. We pray for our good and for your glory. Amen.